0: Welcome to the second series of podcasts focusing on innovative design trials from the Health Research Authority, the NIHR-CRN Coordinating Centre, and in this series, the NIHR Office for Clinical Research Infrastructure. This time, we will be discussing some of the key learning points from the COVID-19 pandemic, and we will be building on the further questions around the management and delivery of complex innovative design trials during the pandemic. My name is Alan Gaw, and it's a pleasure to have you with us. I'm joined today by Camille Carroll, who is Associate Professor in the Faculty of Health at the Peninsula Medical School and Honorary Consultant Neurologist in University Hospitals Plymouth NHS Trust. She's also the National Specialty Lead for Neurodegenerative Diseases in the NIHR CRN. Dr. Carroll's current research focus is on clinical trials of neuroprotective interventions in Parkinson's disease, currently being the Chief Investigator of a multi-centre Clinical trial of simvastatin as a potential neuroprotective therapy. She also has an interest in the use of novel technology, wearable sensors and apps for early disease detection, personalising therapy and monitoring disease progression. Dr. Carroll, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I mentioned in my introduction your interest in the novel use of technology in healthcare and, in particular, the use of wearable sensors. So I would like, if I may, to explore that topic with you, especially in the context of complex, innovative design trials. So can I begin by asking you to put this into some context for us? How widely are such devices currently used in a clinical research setting and for what purposes?
1: Well, the simple answer is that they're used very widely and for an increasing number of purposes. So to give you some numbers, um, I did a very quick search of clinicaltrials.gov and what, what I found uh, was 5,000 studies that uh, listed using either sensors or wearables. However, use in therapeutic trials is less frequent. So if we look at um, studies that are phase two or phase three clinical trials, then there are about 300 in total of those. So what that tells me is that there's a lot of research interest in the field, but that the carry through to an outcome measure that can actually be used in clinical trials, uh, testing interventions is much less well-established the studies will be using the sensor technology in different ways. In some studies, it will be validating the technology, comparing it with a, a more established outcome. So an example of that would be the automated analysis of testing for blood in the stool screening for bowel cancer compared, compared with traditional testing. Uh, in, in other settings, the sensor technology might be well established in the research setting, but maybe not so widely used in clinical practice. So an example of that would be sensors of balance and gait, which allow uh, you to test an intervention such as a training program or different sorts of orthotic device and sometimes um, the the sensor might have to be worn in the laboratory or clinic uh, situation and sometimes those sensors can be worn in the home environment. Other sensors are routinely used in clinical practice and so trials using those sensors, the sensor might actually be the primary outcome measure. Uh, An example would be uh, testing of blood sugar levels using um, a sensor and when a, sensor, a measure is this well established, it can then be used to inform or drive the intervention. So there is a study currently using a sensor um, of blood sugar level to drive the rate of an insulin inf- infusion pump. So you can see that harnessing the power of the technology really uh, enables us to deliver care much above what we're able to deliver using traditional measures. Um, the wearable itself could actually deliver the intervention. Um, so an interesting example of that uh, that I found, um, which is very much of the moment, is a study of transcutaneous, uh, that means through the skin, vagus nerve stimulation to assist people with neurological symptoms of COVID-19 infection like dizziness or um Uh, tinnitus and the the wearable is uh, an earbud type device which is worn in the ear and that actually delivers the vagal nerve stimulation uh, linked to a smartphone. So you can see the scope and the breadth of the technologies available and I've only really um, scratched the surface. It's a rapidly developing field and I'm sure that these technologies within clinical research studies will become much more commonplace over the next uh, five to ten years.
0: What are the advantages for trial conduct in utilising such innovative devices?
1: To fully answer the question, I think it's important to think about the disadvantages of our traditional trial assessment methods and the the challenges that these uh, new methods might therefore be able to assist us with. So in Parkinson's disease, our traditional measures rely on rater interpretation of what they're seeing, such as a tapping task or walking. And that's subject to variability, both within a rater and between raters. And that evaluation, of course, is just performed in a snapshot in time, which might not be representative of the patient's lived experience of their disease or how they are at home. We can get around that in part by asking patients for their impression of their uh, disease or their symptoms using validated patient reported outcome measures. But those measures are also open to bias and open to recall error. And uh, a last point to make is that traditionally, when we deliver um, studies in in conditions such as Parkinson's, often those studies require study visits, uh, which we ask patients to attend. And attending those visits obviously is a travel burden and can cause anxiety, and for some that might influence what it is that we're measuring, so we know that tremor, for example, and indeed a lot of Parkinson's symptoms do get worse if people are anxious. And having travel requirements and the need for proximity to study sites, of course, means that we're delivering less inclusive research. So sensor-based measures offer advantages at at several levels. They've got the potential to quantify symptom severity with hopefully better sensitivity and objectivity than we can achieve using our rater-dependent scales, and in a way that's standardised across um, study sites and between assessments. They also allow for increased testing frequency so that we can assess um, a symptom, a motor symptom, movement symptom at a particular point in time, but also repeated over time. And wearable sensors, of course, allow for assessments to be carried out in the home environment, which produces data which we would say is high in ecological validity, i.e. it really mirrors what the patient is experiencing at home and also allows us to capture um, outcomes which, which we wouldn't see in the clinic environment, such as falls, for example. Uh, And it it also allows us to evaluate more complex uh, items such as gait. Additionally, sensor based measures might allow us to capture other parameters within a particular task. So in Parkinson's, we often ask people to tap their forefinger to their thumb and repeat that as quickly as they can, and what we aren't able to detect Uh, with the human eye so accurately is is hesitancy for example or um, variation in rate of tapping and that's what hopefully a sensor would be able to pick up uh, with greater detail for us. The use of wearable sensors within the home as a primary means of capturing data during the course of the study opens the possibility of having less study visits. So that would hopefully make studies, taking part in studies more appealing and uh, allow us to deliver studies in a more geographically dispersed population and hopefully retain patients in studies because um, particularly in Parkinson's where the studies might be two years or three years in duration, um, reducing study burden for patients is really um, important. And for some studies, that ability to deliver the, the measure at home and indeed the intervention at home means that there's scope for delivering the whole study uh, remotely um, based in the patient's home. And you can immediately see how that will have advantages, particularly in today's world, where we're trying to um, reduce in-clinic contacts primarily because of the risk of COVID infection.
0: Continuing our examination of your own field of neurodegenerative disorders, what impact would you say trials using wearable sensors have had? And perhaps you could give us a specific example.
1: So within um, neurodegeneration trials uh, uh, as we've talked about are increasingly using sensors and wearables and as a trial community it's really important that we utilise the opportunity of existing and future studies to facilitate uh, what we hope will turn into better ways of measuring disease and particularly in a way that's more acceptable to patients and reflective of their lived experience of that disease that we're trying to impact with our um, interventions that we're developing. So within the neurodegeneration portfolio, most studies will include at least one wearable sensor or or digital measure of some sort. And these are incorporated for slightly different reasons. So, for example, it could be that we've um, incorporated the digital measure for validation purposes or to inform continuing development of that measure. And that allows us to work collaboratively with um, the the developers of technology, the small companies that are developing these these gadgets and bits, bits of kit that we think are going to be helpful for us. Or it could be to evaluate a validated measure in the setting of a study to see what this tells us about the disease that we're investigating. So an example where these two approaches have been combined is the NIHR funded exenotide study, which is being led by Professor Fulton at UCL. And this is evaluating a finger-worn sensor for measuring hand movement in Parkinson's to see how well this correlates with our traditional rater-based scale in the study clinic. And it's also using um, a smartphone app that patients will interact with in a repeated way at home to see if this gives us more reliable information about someone's Parkinson's in the home environment. And thirdly, that, that study is also including a sensor, which is a extremely well-validated measure of gait strapped to the lower back, and that allows continuous monitoring of patients in the home over several days, so this will provide really rich information that would not be available to the study team. And this approach of embedding these digital or sensor-based substudies into clinical trials within neurodegeneration is also being adopted by pharma, and this is leading to some really positive developments in disease measurement within neurodegeneration. Such forms
0: of data collection clearly offer new, exciting possibilities for those designing clinical trials. But are there any challenges that still need to be overcome?
1: Oh, yes, there are uh, challenges in in many domains. And I'm going to highlight just a couple. And these are validity and deliverability. So it's really important. These devices and innovations are not perceived as the emperor's new clothes. It's really easy to assume that a digital version of an existing measure will be equivalent in terms of its performance and validity. And with wearables and sensors, of course, the information that, we're not, that we are collecting is not usually a direct translation of a clinical scale. It's usually information that's been modified in some way or processed via an algorithm. And we need to really make sure that these devices measure what we think they do, that means that they're technically valid. Uh, And importantly, this includes testing that validity in the environment where they're going to be used, most likely the home environment, and not just in a laboratory or clinic setting. We then need to make sure that they're clinically useful, that they tell us something helpful in order to ensure that we're using them the best way, firstly for the study and then maybe in the future in clinical care. So for example, are they able to measure if if a disease worsens? Are they able to detect a change due to a treatment or intervention? And are they able to predict events or detect events? All of these things need to be established before we can really know that that sensor or wearable is behaving in a way that we are expecting it to in the context of the study. And the way that these devices are validated is still not consistent or standardised. This is very much still an innovating uh, and developing field. And this is an important area of research in itself, the development and adoption of standardised processes, including those for data management that are acceptable to regulators. So a major initiative driving this forward is the EU-funded IMI consortium, Mobilise D, and this is led by Professor Lynn Rochester in Newcastle. This is a public-private partnership that aims to bring digital mobility outcomes from concept to widespread adoption. And another similar initiative is the EU-IMI-funded Idea FAST, and this is evaluating real-world assessment of non-movement-related symptoms of fatigue and sleep. And collectively, these two consortia are addressing the clinical challenges from concept to adoption, including the patient perspective. And that's really important because, of course, these measures have to be acceptable to patients um, or they, they won't be useful to us either for clinical trials or in clinical care. And it's only when validity and clinical utility are established to an acceptable standard that the regulators will start to consider these measures as appropriate endpoints for regulatory purposes. And by that, I mean approving a new drug or therapy that we might have tested in our study. And in turn, this will help drive clinical adoption through programmes such as uh, HTA. Um, In order to to be deliverable within clinical trials, it's important that technology is usable by an acceptable Uh, to both the patient and the clinical research delivery team who will be supporting the patient through the study and one can easily envisage that potential study participants might be excluded if they're not able to use the sensor, for example, a physical reason such as a visual difficulty or infrastructure reasons such as lack of internet or mobile phone connectivity. Participants might be uncomfortable with or suspicious of the concept of sensors or monitors in the home and it's really important as researchers that we understand these factors and influences and what underlies them and what we can do to mitigate those in order to maintain research opportunity being as as inclusive and As possible, And the last point that I want to make is that we need to think about the research delivery workforce and whether there's a skills gap or a knowledge gap that needs addressing with targeted training. Site staff are going to be the first port of call if something goes wrong with the wearable or device, if the signal isn't transmitted or the wrong colour, light is flashing. So the workforce of the future will have to be increasingly comfortable working in this digital space.
0: It's clearly a fascinating area and certainly one ripe with possibilities. Dr. Carroll, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with me today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We would very much welcome your feedback on these podcasts. And I hope you will join us again next time.